but I didn't have a record deal. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I just got heard by the right person. And while that tour was going on, I got all of those. Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at getearfuel.com. What you heard at the top was part of my conversation with AJ Croce, which we will get to in a second, right after we look at two records you need to get your ears on. With the record review this week, I want to do something slightly different. There are two records that came out earlier this year that I didn't actually get to hear until the last week or two, and I really, really dig them for very different reasons. So I wanted to turn you on to them so you can go check them out, and special thanks to my buddy Henry for turning me on to these. The first album I want to recommend is called GT Ultra, and it came out at the end of June from the band Gorilla Toss. To start with, there's really no accurate way to describe their music. There really isn't a genre that's completely fitting, as Gorilla Toss combine a number of diverse sounds, including new wave, synth pop, punk, really experimental stuff, well, kind of experimental stuff. See, I think that their sound is sort of what would happen if Devo and the B-52s did a collaborative song in their musical primes, and then they had Brian Eno producing it. It's sort of... I don't know, if someone having a really fun acid trip in the parking lot of Lollapalooza made a record, it might sound like GT Ultra. Makes sense to me in my head. You gotta hear this one, trust me. There are fantastic, super catchy melodies on every song, just the right amount of reverb, and even a few balanced moments of darkness. If I had to describe this record in one word, it would be colorful. From the cover to... You know, just the way these songs come across, it's a splatter painting of sounds and feelings, and it makes for a very enjoyable 29 minutes. This isn't something that's for anyone of a specific genre. I really think if you're into music in general, you will probably like GT Ultra. It's just a lot of fun and very cool, and there's nothing else really going on quite like it right now in music. I will say, though, I'm not sure if this record is going to have much longevity. It's an album that is very right now. It it sounds like right now, and even a few years from now, it might sound very, very dated. But, I mean, it is now, right? So go check out GT Ultra and enjoy. The other record I want to make you aware of comes from the other end of the musical spectrum, and it's Pharmacon's album called Contact that came out in the spring. Now, I want to say... If any of you listening knew about this record, I'm a little bit pissed at you because you didn't tell me about it. I'm so mad I didn't hear this record until now because I could have been enjoying it since then. If you don't know Pharmacon, it's a one-woman project that many refer to as confrontational industrial noise. Oh, that is such an amazing gloss. I hope one day someone will refer to me as confrontational industrial noise. Anyway, this is one of the angrier albums I've heard in a long time in a good way. This album is not for everyone. It is very much an acquired taste. It's aggressive and in your face, but often not in the way that most people are used to experiencing those things. Contact has brilliant moments of noise that are akin to Rune Lindblad's Musica Concrete in the 50s, 
and there are other parts that sound like the ideal backing track to a slow, methodical mass murder. What I'm saying is, this record is very unsettling and very hostile. The opening track makes no apologies for that, though it's also a gateway to truly brilliant musical compositions. Many of the songs completely surround you, and it's the feelings of desolation and despair and hopelessness that come through clearly in these sonic landscapes. To be honest, this is the sort of record you really need to experience firsthand to properly appreciate. Words just can't do justice to the sounds on it. But be prepared. This is the sort of record you're going to love or hate within seconds. But it's well worth dipping your toe in, so go check it out. Moving on. Since he was in his teens, A.J. Croce has been performing his fantastic blend of soulful, bluesy, folky, musical greatness. And if you recognize the name, yes, his father was the late, great Jim Croce. But on A.J.'s latest album, Just Like Medicine, he delivers an addictive, simmering blend of sounds and feelings that are impossible not to get caught up in. And you're going to hear appearances in both sound and spirit from artists across the sonic spectrum. We sat down to chat about how this unique record came to be, his approach to recording, life on the road, and many other things the other day. So sit back and enjoy. Yeah, I kind of like that. I've been betrayed by the ones I love, lost faith in a lot of us, ashamed of the way I've acted. I mean, that's about, that's about as good as a start as it's going to get. Okay. Right? Like, perfect. You got it. I, I, I'm going to jump in full steam with the new record. Okay. Because I really, really like it. And cool, man. I really, I'm really proud of it. You know, I wasn't sure at first. You, you finish a record after doing it for 25 years, and you're like, is it the best thing I've ever done? Is it the worst thing I've ever done? Is it fall somewhere in the middle? You don't have a real good reference point. And... Um, but, you know, my wife dug it, and that means a lot. And then a couple of friends who are just not going to lie to me told me they liked it, you know. <laughs> so um, so I felt like I was off to a good start. And um, I'm, you know, proud of, of all the folks that came in and did it. A lot of people came in for nothing just mm -hmm. to be able to play with one another. Because I assembled with Dan Penn yeah. such an unusual uh, and special group of musicians. So... It's it's obviously pretty different from the last few records you've done. You know, it's it's, it's a little darker to me. Uh, there's definitely a lot more focus on the soul and stuff mm, like that. Yeah. Uh, was it a conscious decision to make a different sounding record? Uh, I wasn't thinking different, um, but I suppose it, I was. At, at the same time, I shouldn't say that. I was thinking about recording it differently. I was thinking about recording it mono. Um, I always pretty much record live. So uh, with with Twelve Tales, whether I was with Toussaint or whether I was here mm -hmm. in New York with uh, with Greg Cohen and 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 that crew, or in Nashville with uh, Cowboy, it was all live. Everything was live. So we'd have you know four hours. We might block out six hour session, but we'd mostly be done in four hours. Mm -hmm. So. With this, my thought was we're gonna let's record it mono, um, and I was thinking about it not because it's a soul album, but be, I had no interest in 
um, in it being a, a quote unquote soul album. I wanted mm. it to be soul inspired, you know. Sure. Uh, I didn't want to cover Motown or 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 uh, high record stuff or M- Muzzle Shoals or uh, Stacks or you know, Atlantic. I wanted to, you know, sort of filter it through my own uh, thoughts, mm. you know, and and uh, sensibilities. That's about all I can say about it being different. Um, the mono factor was was a big factor, and the and the fact that it went straight to tape, mm-hmm. uh, we only had sixteen tracks. That was another factor. Um, the mixer we we used, the main mixer that everyone went through, was a four channel in uh, Motown. It was like this green box made by Alltech, and and it was the one that was in Motown's basement. Nice. And um, it was a magic thing. When that thing went down, um, everything came to a screeching halt. Because sure. even though there were alternatives sure. <laughs> that were really good, it's not the right one. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't sound yeah. the same, you yeah. know. And uh, same thing with the with the band. You know, we we started recording two songs, and I thought it might be a forty five last summer, mm-hmm. and uh, David Hood, um, the bass player from Muscle Shoals, mm-hmm. um, he he hurt his wrist. He was, he broke his wrist. He was out on the road with a band, uh, I think the water boys. Uh-huh. And he said, uh, he's like, I can't do October, you know, which was the time I was coming back from tour. And he said, he's like, you, you guys got to get another bass player. And I said, I, I thought about it for one second for a day, for half a day. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the stuff and I said, I need the same guy. And that made a huge difference because his tone and his approach really uh added enormously to it yeah yeah it's all it's all the tone is just outrageous on everybody so you know where you were saying these are definite kind of nods to your influences there you know because you you can hear ray charles in there Uh, you can hear a little randy newman in there maybe Uh um definitely leon russell in there so are these the sounds you grew up with is this kind of a letter to your past in a way not consciously i think it's who i am as a as a performer and a writer i mean that's what i do it's a it's you know there's there's something that's that i have drawn from from uh you know from all of my influences but i think i've come to a point where where they're just uh you you recognize it and Mm -hmm. that's it you know you know you attack it your own way as soon as anyone in the studio said oh this reminds me of this or this reminds me of this you know it could have been anything oh it's like that riff in um in uh that otis redding song or it's like that riff in uh you know whatever song you could say anything mm-hmm. um dan immediately went stop everything and and would uh reset everything so that it sounded different he was very strict about making it original mm-hmm. and so uh, i was lucky in that way you know yeah, yeah, it's it because again, like you can tell where these things are coming from, but it's not like any of those other songs. It, it managed to walk that extremely fine line. So, um, so how did you get all of these amazing people to be involved with this record? I mean, it's 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 such a special project. I called them. I asked them <laughs> the traditional way. Yeah, I just asked them. Um, I I didn't know David Hood, mm-hmm. so um, Dan Pan I met uh, after. He performed a concert at City Winery, and I asked if he would be uh, uh, into writing a song. Mm-hmm. And he called me a couple weeks later and said, "Hey, son, you want to come on over and write, <laughs> write a song?" We did. Uh, a couple weeks after that, we said, "Let's." I brought him in. Uh, Cures just like medicine, mm-hmm. and I said, 
uh, what do you think of it? He said, I like it. I see, he's like, let's record it. I said, well, let's record both songs and, and, and let's do it as if we're making a record. Let's do it as if we're doing a 45. He okay. said, he said, great. So 16 track, two inch mono, McCrary sisters, Muscle Shoals horns, David Hood, Brian Owings, uh, Colin Linden on guitar, myself playing piano and singing and every all you know all the basic stuff is live there wasn't enough room for the horns and the singers at the same time mm -hmm. so um it i love the way it sounded but you know we we ran out of inputs really quickly because we our heads were still in a modern world of recording sure uh we never went over 16 we didn't do subgroups we didn't do anything like that we just uh we just like you know we didn't decided not to have a click, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, after we did that and, and it was, it was, we had like a rough mix. I said, uh, I asked Dan, I said, Dan, I want to make it feel like, you know, when we walk in like 16 tracks is, is like some, you know, embarrassment of riches. Like what could we possibly do with, with, with 16 tracks? And he said, he said, I understand. He said, uh, when I was, uh, he wrote the letter and he was the engineer and producer for for the box tops yeah. and uh for that for that uh session and he said uh we had three tracks he said one for the band one for alex chilton and the vocals and then one for uh strings and horns and he's he's like that's what we had and it was mono he had one speaker on the console uh and it became a hit and he said they called uh, I think it was Capitol Records called him and said, "Hey, can you do a stereo mix of this?" And he and he was like, <laughs> "You mean two speakers?" You know, because I think at that point in the '60s, '67 or sure. something, it was still stereo was a very new thing. No one knew really what you could do. Yeah, and you had really terrible stereo. I don't know if you ever had an old car where um, you know it was like some early stereo uh, version of something and and like one speaker goes out mm -hmm. and and all you have is like the vocals and right. like the lead guitar right or, that's it right or no you, rhythm at yeah, all yeah. Going or on. you yeah. just have background vocals and part of the band yeah. you know yeah. it was like um you know he we, we were we were really on the same page and uh I asked if he wanted to do it, and, and he said, yeah. And I called everyone else and said, hey, are you into it? They said, yeah. Um, Leon and I had written a bunch of songs together, and mm -hmm. I had hoped that he would, you know, be able to play organ yeah. on uh, on something. And, and sadly, he, you know, he passed, but... I think he would have approved of of it. He um, he approved of the other stuff that uh, I recorded uh, of ours, mm -hmm. and uh, I know that he liked Cropper, and and Cropper uh, was someone that one of the very first people I met in Nashville when I was seventeen. I was mm -hmm. doing a session for a, a guy named Cowboy Jack Clement, and mm -hmm. um, that's a totally other story. But anyway he and I had sort of stayed in touch over the years, uh, Steve Cropper. I called him up and he said, uh, absolutely, I'll be there. And, <laughs> uh, and, and didn't charge anything. He just said, you know, came in with a guitar and, and, uh, played the part. And, it, and I'm like, there, there it is. You know, yeah, it it's, like, a, it's sound a sound, like, sound nobody else. Yeah. Has. It's like, like that's, that's Steve it. Cropper. You know, yeah. I don't even know if he ever learned the song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Vince Gill, I didn't really know, um, but I was w I was willing to uh, venture a call to him, 
and I thought he'd be perfect for this song that mm-hmm. was, you know, a song that my dad had written. I, I'd never done uh, one of his songs, and I, if I was going to, I wanted to do it where I could be sort of a collaborator of sorts sure. and um, uh, record a song that had never been recorded. Mm-hmm. And um, and Vince is a great guitarist, and Colin's a great guitarist, and so between uh, the two of them, we got you know we got name of the game and uh yeah i mean he was he vince's with vince was easy he was just like uh you know what time should i be there so with name of the game is that something you've been considering for a while or was it just kind of like in the moment you're like we're gonna do this now no it it was uh, yeah the day before we went in to do uh tracking on the other eight songs Mm -hmm. because we had recorded the first two i met over at dan's house and we just sat down and relaxed and you know had a he has these you know little fantas or something like that you know mm-hmm. and he's like it's like yeah i don't know i i played it for him and it had to pass the audition test like every other song on mm-hmm. the record and i did not tell him that this is a song of my dad sure i wanted him to either like it or not like it and also like my performance or not like it and uh, i think i played it for him on guitar and that didn't deter him from you know the enjoyment <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah uh, I do love playing guitar, but I'm I'm really a you know I pay to play I'm paid to play piano. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so what is the audition process then? With a song, mm-hmm. it was just really playing them, and um, there were a couple of factors to, to think of because you know when you write a lot of stuff uh, like I do, and when you write a lot of things that that may be in the same couple month period of time, you might have five or six different kind of themes that you're working on mm-hmm. you know so they're not always very diverse sure so you want to make sure that you pick the ones that are the best and the most diverse that keep your ear you know interested in it yeah uh, also you know let's get to the point you know i don't think there's anything over three minutes the whole album's like maybe 32 minutes um a little bit and, punk rock and we were really yeah. thinking about about side a and side b when we did it okay so you know, obviously, then you went in to this audition kind of, you know, the audition period for these songs with a lot of material. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of material. Um, I'd been touring a lot, so I hadn't been writing a ton because I was just, it was, I was in Europe twice. I was in the, all over the U.S. And by the time um, David Hood had healed in, in January, I was still touring and um, took a break took a week off, turned off my phone, turned off my computer, um, went somewhere beautiful and um, laid on a beach and I had a had a little keyboard which I travel with and a little and a little guitar. I just sort of when it, when it felt right, I just went through the stuff and I looked at the lyrics and I looked at the the whole what all of what I had and I said, you know, what's what feels best, mm-hmm. you know? And that that was really helpful. I just needed space. Even though I was writing new stuff, I was going, this is going to be for the next one. Mm-hmm. This is going to be for the next one. And um, that's it. So, so you're basically constantly writing 24-7. Well, yeah. no. I'm writing as often as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if I, it's, I think it's a really important exercise if you're a, if you're a songwriter to uh, write something every day. It mm-hmm. doesn't need to be a whole song and no one ever needs to hear it. Um, that's the 
beautiful thing about it is that I could write a song, you know, right now, and as long as we're not recording here, uh, no one ever needs to hear it. I just, I just, you know, do it. Last night I tried out a song that I'd never played before, and I, um, I just wrote it last week, mm-hmm. and I felt like, oh, this is interesting because I wasn't sure exactly how how it would sound live. You don't know how your the adrenaline goes when you're when you're playing live, sure. and it just, sure. and I was like, oh. Cool, I know it's you know it's going to end up on the next record, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try and write a piece of something every day, um, and I try and practice every day mm-hmm. because I want to I want to be better. I want to get I want to be a better musician. I want to play guitar better. I want to play bass better. I want to play piano better. I get it. I get it. You know, you you are um, beyond a road warrior. You know, you you've been touring for what probably the better part of 30 years now started when really when i was 16 mm-hmm. uh, well, a little bit earlier 15 i started going to london and i was sort of chasing a ghost mm-hmm. um you know i sort of refer to it as my costume rock period okay. where i was like still looking for that you know that it was that like mod revival and i was looking for that sort of that i wanted to find that and what I found was, and you know, an aging Georgie fame, you know, uh, you know, screaming, uh, screaming Lord Such, who who was just a caricature of himself, mm-hmm. even though it was entertaining, sure, and and as you know, really pervy Desmond Decker, and I was just like, <laughs> I was like, and you know, I saw some good music, but. I realized that, like, you know, it wasn't 1965, and like I was, uh, I was, you know, dressed inappropriately for the time, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that's where it started. And then um, I really started in earnest when I was 18 because BB King heard me uh, play here in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, said, "Yeah, I love your left hand, man," and and I think I played some boogie thing. And uh, he said, "Want to go out on the road?" And I said, "Yeah, of course, sure." sure. You know, I did, I thought it was it didn't you know I thought it was a California promise, you yeah, know, which right, is like right. we'll have lunch, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I said, and you know, two weeks later, I get a call from one of his uh, representatives, and they said, uh, uh, "You want to go out on the road with with BB? Um, we'll fly you up to uh, I think Seattle. It was the starting point, or mm-hmm. or uh, Vancouver, and and." Um, played a bunch with him and that's where it started. I didn't have a record deal. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I just got heard by the right person and, and went out. And while that tour was going on, I got all of those things, mm-hmm. you know, and then started playing with some of my heroes with Ray Charles, with James Brown, with Aretha, with, you know, tons of Neville brothers. Yeah. The Nevilles and I played together probably 60 or 70, maybe more times. And they were really generous in spirit and mm-hmm. just good human beings. Mm-hmm. So over all of these years on the road and just being in the business mm. with all the changes that have happened, what do you feel has been the most beneficial as an artist into artists? And what do you think has been the most harmful? They might be the same thing. Okay. It's a big question to ask, mm-hmm. you know, but I think in one sense, the fact that people are able to choose what they want to hear and they're not being told it's not being filtered through a major label mm-hmm. any longer um even the biggest artists are often on 
you know, indies or uh, at least subsidiaries of sure. or their own labels. And there's been a leveling of the playing field in a sense that um, someone that put posts a really cool song on, on YouTube could get more hits than the Stones, mm-hmm. you know, today. And that is a really amazing thing. I think it's also uh, to the detriment of the profession because uh, to be able to make a living, you need to be able to get paid for every time stuff gets played. And it, that's, that's not a really, uh, that's not high on the list of the streaming services. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you get about a thousandth of what you got before. Sure. And um, literally. And so it's kind of interesting. I was having this talk yesterday that the D, the D, they're not really DJs, but the people that that are putting successful playlists together that are reaching hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. or millions of people are the new tastemakers. You know, it's it's like a, a time in the '50s or '60s or '70s or you know, really those three decades where a DJ could play something and yeah. it and it would make a world of a difference. Right. And and I. Find that that is really uh, that's really the case now. Unfortunately, most of the gigs out there, they say, well, money's in touring. You know that most of the gigs pay about what they paid 25 years ago. So it's not that I'm not getting a raise anywhere. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not probably won't ever see an artist royalty again. I may never see a, a you know a, a writers or publishing royalty unless. Uh, you know, it gets licensed to a film, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of the the world we live in. So there's benefits to it. There's an egalitarian aspect to it that I completely love. And at the same time, it's going to um, change the landscape and has changed the landscape of being able to do it professionally. So last question. Okay. The new record. Yes. Do you have a favorite song? I do. Uh, my favorite is uh, uh, Cures Just Like Medicine. Okay. And the reason uh, for that is because it is an absolutely honest and very literal uh, explanation of where my uh, head was when I was making this record. Mm-hmm. I had left a house. I had to sell my house for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. I had to move. I had, I recognized that I didn't, you know, I had a lot of acquaintances, but not very many close friends. I felt shell shocked by the experience of being uprooted and just having having to do all this stuff. And at the same time, my kids were grown. My daughter is twenty seven. My son's was my son was leaving for for college, and I felt like an island. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the relationship that I have with my wife that really pulled me pulled me in and you know reminded me that uh, there's a lot of things in life that are that are worth living for my thanks again to aj croce for stopping by be sure to go pick up just like medicine and go see him next time he's in your town now before we wrap the episode i do of course have your weekly ear fuel listening assignment For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the reality that these days, music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, whatever, and this assignment is about taking time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, because of the state of the world, 
And because it's one of the greatest albums in history, your listening assignment is Marvin Gaye's timeless 1971 masterpiece, What's Going On. Before we even get into the music itself, know that I truly, honestly believe that this record should be issued to every human upon birth. It is that great and it is that important. Chances are you already know at least one or two songs from the record, and you should. The title track alone is beyond iconic and perhaps frustratingly is still just as relevant today as it was almost five decades ago. Yeah, this album is approaching 50 years old. Now, this album was a pretty sharp turn for Marvin Gaye, and along with all the problems in society at the time, he was also in the midst of a massive bout of depression. Just a few months before recording sessions, his longtime singing partner, the great Tammy Terrell, passed away. This all but destroyed Marvin's interest in recording, to the point that he actually tried out for the Detroit Lions football team at one point. Eventually, songwriter Al Cleveland asked for help completing a song called What's Going On?, and Marvin would eventually record it, but then Motown boss Barry Gordy Jr. refused to release it on the grounds that it was too political. It took almost a year before he was convinced to give it a chance, and then the song became the label's fastest-selling single ever, and Marvin Gaye quickly went into the studio to record an entire album around it. The music itself is nothing short of astounding, as it brilliantly blends gorgeous, soulful melodies with unforgettable hooks and a message that's impossible to ignore. From the struggles of living in the forgotten inner cities, to irreversible damage to the environment, to war, to a number of other eerily relevant issues, Gay pulls no punches in his words. In fact, What's Going On is a loose concept album following a Vietnam veteran returning home to see the state of decay in his country and wondering if his sacrifices were really worth it. It's the way that these words and themes float beautifully over the music that really draw you in further and further. From the deep grooves on What's Happening, Brother, to the ethereal Save the Children, to the dark bounce on Inner City Blues, there's not a second here that's anything less than stellar. The songs flow flawlessly into one another, and What's Going On is just one of those records that when it finishes, you just want to play it again. Of course, on top of everything, the music, the themes, on top of all of that, you have the legendary voice of Marvin Gaye. Few, if any, performers have matched his emotion and raw talent, and it's truly one of the special voices from the entire history of music. There's soulful, there's smooth, there's powerful, and then there's Marvin Gaye. It's just one of those bars that everybody aims to get to, but nobody ever achieves. On every note, you can feel that these are truly his worries, his beliefs, his struggles in the world, and it's hard not to get caught up in it. Look, there are very few albums that I think deserve the title of perfect, but what's going on is unquestionably on the list. The music, the lyrics, and the vocals are far beyond the ability of pretty much everyone else in history. And if somehow you don't already spin this on a weekly basis, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. My thanks again to AJ Croce for stopping by to chat. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores along with at GetEarFuel.com. And you can find me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. And if you're one of those Instagram types, I am under the name EarFuel there as well. That is your weekly EarFuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy.